Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. We'll be in Acts chapter 9 today. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. How many of you uh, would, would acknowledge that at some point in your life, you have had a relationship with someone that you've thought it would take a miracle for them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can I see some hands in the room? Maybe these are family members, maybe these are coworkers, neighbors, people in the community. But the reality is that we have this sense of the impossibility of them to receive the truth of who Jesus is, to repent and change their life. It it seems impossible. It would take a miracle. Well, we've seen a lot of miracles in the book of Acts in our studies so far. We've seen things like the sign gifts in Acts 2 and when tongues are being expressed and, and the spirit of God falls on the apostles. We've seen things like prison doors being opened miraculously for the apostles to be set free. We've seen healing We've seen all kinds of miracles through the course of our study thus far, supernatural events. And and last week when Pastor Phil was talking about the Ethiopian story, he was talking about the miracles of God's providence in setting up these divine appointments where there are things that are too coincidental to just be coincidence, right? But at the end of that story, there's also this moment where as soon as Philip has baptized the Ethiopian, like the spirit of the Lord whisks him away and takes him to another place. And I can't quite fathom what that must have been like, but it was another confirming sign that God had acted in this moment and that he was continuing to spread the gospel. Well, Saul's conversion, as we're about to look at today, is another miraculous development in God's program, as God is moving to accomplish Acts 1-8, that the gospel would go to the outermost parts. This is according to God's design, right? It's according to God's design. And Paul's testimony becomes such a critical piece of the New Testament going forward. As a matter of fact, he retells his testimony two more times, beyond the, the, a full retelling beyond just the, the text that we're reading today, at length tells the story with various emphases, and he's going to allude to it multiple times in the epistles as well that are going to come. So his story is so important to the New Testament narrative going forward. It becomes almost a paradigm, right? 
right? A paradigm for how the gospel miraculously transforms the lives of sinners to become believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And so his, his, his story is a miracle. It's a, it's a paradigm for how God can miraculously change the lives of sinners. If the chief of sinners, as he refers to himself, can be transformed, and so can anyone, right? That's the beauty of, of the gospel. And so, you know, I guess the thought that I want to tease us with a little bit as we begin to dive into the scriptures is this. Doesn't it take a miracle for anyone to believe? Doesn't it take a miracle for any single one of us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think that it does. Let's, let's take apart this story together this morning. So let's look at Saul's mission. We read these verses already, but if you would, open your, your copy of the scriptures and just take a look at them together with me. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where we're told that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time in the book of Acts, and this is actually a term exclusively to the book of Acts, where the believers are called the way, which is a very interesting title. It's not going to be until years later at Antioch that they're going to be called Christians, which is the name we continue to be known by uh, in the world today. Uh, But this term, the way, is what believers who are still closely associated with the Jewish faith are being known by. And so that, that idea could come from the idea of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Perhaps that is the, the, the name where that originates from. It's clearly our, re- representing the true way of salvation, the true way of life in relationship to God. Um, but this expression we'll begin to see occurring more and more frequently in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, referring to the believers. Now, Saul is determined to seek out and destroy all those who are committed to the way before that heresy can expand even further, right, by his expression, right? And, and if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the persecution that began in Jerusalem with uh, the murder of Stephen. The, the Sanhedrin is so enraged by what Stephen has to say, right, that he has taken them through a historical journey of Israel rejecting the truth of what God was doing all the way up to the point where they would encounter the Messiah and, and, and kill him, right? And then he says, so it says at the end here that they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, whose story we're about to look at today. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep And Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Let's pause there for a second. And uh, Pastor Scott reminded us a few weeks ago that when persecution comes, persecution for Christ always bears fruit. And so from the church's perspective, the way's perspective, because they weren't known as the church at this point, right? Um, 
this is a this is a dark time. It's dark in that there is this opposition to the gospel, and and the thousands that are coming to to believe. You know, that's one thing. But man, the the culture is rejecting this message of Jesus Christ. They've rejected the Messiah. And yet God is using that to bear fruit. That is, he is spreading the gospel out into the uttermost parts. Persecution continues to be the vehicle that the good news is transported. It drives them out of Jerusalem into these other areas, of which Damascus is one of them. Damascus is about five or six days, 150-mile journey northeast from Jerusalem into Syrian territory. So it's outside of the jurisdiction of Israel, but it's home to a a post-exile, like a large population of Jewish people. And so they have synagogues there. And again, Christianity is continuing to be closely associated with with Judaism at this point in in its history. They're meeting together in the synagogues and worshiping together, and yet there is this this gap that's widening from traditional Jewish believers who are still looking for the promised Messiah and the, the, the Christians who say, he's come, it was this one, it was this Jesus. So the Sanhedrin doesn't actually hold any jurisdiction in Damascus, but they're leaning into their spiritual authority to encourage the rabbis and the teachers there to cooperate with the mission that Saul is on to capture and bring back disciples. Uh, some scholars say that the rulers over the area of Syria at this time would have been uh, opponents to Rome, and so they would have been perhaps sympathetic to a allow the Jews free reign to do kind of what they want to do to to extradite some of these people and bring them back home and and, and do what they will with them. You may recall that that Rome uh, likes to keep the peace as much as possible, and often they keep the peace quite violently. And so if someone else is being violent, they will respond with more violence in turn because everybody should be at peace. Um, but the reality here is that they're using their spiritual authority to, uh, to, to, um, to support this decision that Saul is making to bring these people back. So disciples of the way in Damascus were probably more or less at this point still peacefully coexisting with their traditional Jewish wor- worshipers because there's, we're not told of persecution happening there yet, but Saul is about to bring that into that community or he's going to attempt to. And so Luke as he is telling the story, is characterizing Saul as the arch persecutor of the church, the one who has taken on the face of, of animosity towards the followers of Jesus. You know, Batman had the Joker, right? Superman had Lex Luthor. Luke had Darth Vader, right? And, and Christianity has Saul at this point in their history. He has become the face of the persecution against God's people. Now, he's submissive to the authority of the Sanhedrin, right? Because he has asked, verse two, he's asked for letters that are going to uh, authenticate this mission that he's on, and they're behind it, right? Um, But he himself has become the driving force of this. As a matter of fact, if we look at these verses here, remember, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. We're, We're introduced to him early on here so that we have a sense for where he's about to go. This is a foreshadowing that's happening, that he is gonna be the one who, as verse three says, was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But meanwhile, those who were scattered still went about preaching the word. This is, this is the Saul that we are introduced to. And what he knows is that Damascus is a commercial center where caravans converge from all directions in the ancient world and a place where the Christian faith could begin to flourish. He realized that from Damascus, the gospel of Christ would spread throughout the world. That's not a good thing if you're Saul, right? 
So now I've got to move in, Saul says, and, and put a stop to that. He wanted to stop the influence of Christianity. So he asked the high priest for warrants to arrest Christians, both men and women, in the, Jew- in the Damascus synagogues. Um, and he knew that among the worshipers in the local assemblies were countless followers of Jesus Christ. Here, Saul intended to make multiple arrests. So his zeal, right, against the Christian faith is, is consuming, right? This is his vision of how he is going to fulfill his obedience to the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was pretty clear on the fact that if you found a false prophet, you stone them, right? Deuteronomy chapter 13 gives some pretty clear instructions on, you know, if there's somebody who says they've had a dream or a vision from God and, and you know, whatever sign they're performing comes true, but then they're saying, let's worship another God, you stone that prophet. They're a false prophet. And it actually says the Lord is testing you to see whether your obedience to him is going to be true. And so Saul interpreting these signs of Jesus as that is the power of the devil. That is not the power of Yahweh. Uh, identifies he's a false prophet, he was executed, he's dead and gone, and now we have to eradicate all these followers that are still holding to his teachings. And so when it says that he's breathing threats, uttering murder, he's, he's making vows, right, before the Jer- uh, Jerusalem community, before God, that he is going to do this work of murdering the followers of Jesus. Maybe not with his own hands, but bringing them back and approving of those executions as they happen. Now, some have suggested that Saul, because, uh, you know, Acts chapter 8, uh, excuse me, chapter 7, Luke describes him as being young, a young man, or uninitiated, is perhaps trying to earn a name with, with the Sanhedrin. This is his, you know, underlying motivation as he's being zealous for eradicating Christianity. But either way, he's undertaking this mission to strategically contain the spreading Christian infection. And what I want us to think about here for our purposes when it comes to Saul's mission is this. I can be fully convinced that my personal ambitions are God's will, but be completely mistaken. I can be fully convinced that my personal ambitions are God's will, and yet be completely mistaken. We can be fervently religious for all the wrong reasons, right? Out of fear, out of moral obligation, out of guilt, out of altruism, These are results of errant theology when that is our motive for being religious versus I've embraced the love of Jesus and want to show the love of Jesus to the world. And I know as we think about religion and stuff, like as evangelical Christians, we have this tendency to, you know, say like, it's not a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, right? You've heard this expression, you put it on a t-shirt, it's not religion, it's a relationship, okay? Or a bumper sticker, seen that places, right? But remember, James uses the term religion in a positive sense to talk about the effectiveness of faith in the community, right? That it does something effective, it shows the transformation and it carries the good news to the world. So religion is only problematic when it has this this heartlessness to it or when it is based on errant doctrine and we begin to be convinced that our personal ambitions are the things that we're following. So we we can be fervently religious for the wrong reasons. We can also insist that our way is right despite the counsel of others, can't we? And that's actually Saul's example as well. You may remember back in chapter 5 of of the book of Acts, his own teacher, Gamaliel, had counseled the Jewish people like, hey, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit here. We don't want to be found opposing God in what we're doing, right? We should kind of wait and see how this plays out. Very pragmatic type of counsel, right? Uh, But uh, Saul has sort of 
departed from his teacher on this. He's, he's all in on let's eradicate this, this Christian problem. Um, and, and, you know, those of you who are parents in the room, uh, you know, you can kind of have a unique perspective on how when you think back to when you were a kid and your parents gave you certain practical rules that you didn't particularly care for, curfews and, and things of that nature, like when you become a parent, you start to realize like some of the reasoning behind them, some of the wisdom behind them, right? And, and sort of drawing the parallel between Saul being young and, and uninitiated, rejecting the counsel of his elder, you know, um, there's a lot of wisdom, right? Even though in Gamaliel's case, it's just pragmatic wisdom to follow the counsel of those who are older and wiser than we are. And sometimes we just, yeah, I don't, I don't particularly care for that advice. I don't particularly care for that perspective on things. Let me, let me go this other way with it. And that is where Saul is. He's become convinced that his personal ambitions are God's will. And so it's imperative that you and I interpret the scriptures not just through our cultural lens, like the Jews had done, because that leads to ethnocentrism nationalism, theological arrogance, right? We don't want to read it with American eyes. We want to read the scriptures for what God is saying to us, not just for what the popular culture is saying to us. And then we have to examine our own perspectives on those things very, very carefully because I don't want to be mistaken in my ambitions for my, my, my spiritual ambitions for my life. Does that make sense? I have to examine myself in that. Let's talk about Saul's encounter. So here's Saul's encounter with Christ that happens on the road to Damascus. Fully convinced that he's doing the right thing, he is riding to Damascus. Verse three, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city, you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, this is a clear, um, supernatural appearance of Christ in a vision to Saul. Some have suggested, uh, you know, some type of uh, natural phenomenon that is happening here that God is using as a vehicle. And, you know, when Saul recounts his testimony in Acts 26, he says that the light was so bright it outshone the noonday sun. Uh, So whatever is happening, however God is appearing to Saul on the road here, it is a supernatural thing. It is not, or, you know, it it is not just some some eclipse or something of that nature that is, is causing this light. Um, and as a matter of fact, it's, you, you see even in the reaction of the, the followers, we'll talk more about it in a moment, there is a misunderstanding. They can't quite grasp what has happened here uh, in the way that, that Saul has. Something special is happening here. And Jesus asks the question, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response, who are you, Lord, could be interpreted or translated as, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus' question, uh, I am, uh, when he's identifying himself as Jesus, it could be saying like, um, yes, I, indeed, I am Jesus, as if Saul, when he asked the question, who are you, Lord, has already expressed that he knows who this is that is speaking to him uh, and, and is receiving this revelation all, all in this moment. When Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? It's a reminder that Christ and his people share this inseparable union, 
All right, we are his body, and as the master suffered, so also uh, the servants will suffer. But it's also an acknowledgement that as Saul has sinned against people, ultimately all sin is against God. Uh, You may remember that uh, David, when he's writing in Psalm 51, says, against you and you only have I sinned. And so Saul is sort of being forced to confront this reality that while he was persecuting people and thinking, doing what he thought was right, he ultimately was sinning against God. He was sinning against Christ in what he was doing. Saul's activities, one writer said, were not simply against a group of Jewish Christian opponents. He was persecuting Jesus. The suffering vocation of the Christ continues through the persecuted body of Christ which embodies the work and mission of the risen Christ. Here we have the fulfillment and acts of the prediction of Jesus in the third gospel, whoever rejects you rejects me. And once Saul joins this persecuted group, it will, be, it will belong to his vocation to suffer as well. Getting ahead of myself a little bit. But uh, Saul's companions, they are speechless. Verse seven says they were traveling with him. They stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Something happened here between Saul and the Lord that they were sort of witnesses to, but didn't necessarily experience themselves. It's a a little bit, there's a precedent for that in the Old Testament and and other places in the New Testament as well, where Daniel saw the vision alone. The men who were with me didn't see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. An interesting account there where they are aware that something is happening. God is speaking And they flee in terror, though they don't comprehend what's happening. And and then in the Gospel of John as well, when Jesus is speaking, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So you, you see this, this moment repeated, this theme repeated in the scriptures where a person that God has an appointment with, he speaks to them. Whoever else is there, they have a sense of the supernatural happening, but they don't grasp it. And, and the, the language of the way Paul even retells the story later in, in Acts 22 and Acts 26 communicates that it's, it's hard to articulate what they experienced. They couldn't really put it into words. They heard something. They, they sort of understood something. They didn't quite know what was going on because God's message is for Saul at this point. They witnessed the supernatural encounter, but they weren't able to comprehend what they had heard or seen. They're impacted by it, certainly, but they aren't transformed the way we're about to see Saul transformed. Um, The idea of being rendered speechless means terrified. It implies shaking with fright. And interestingly, you know, if I were Saul's buddy on this journey and I knew what the mission was and I knew what the letter said, I would be like, hey, we got to go to Damascus and do this thing, right? But like, there's no sense of them trying to like put him back on task, right? They've been rocked by whatever has happened here. And it's kind of amusing that whatever they report they bring back to the Sanhedrin or wherever they go, it's so inconsequential that Luke doesn't even tell us what happens to these guys, right? That they're just like, they're touched by something, but they don't believe it the way Saul does. They don't understand the way Saul does, and they just disappear from the story. Meanwhile, Saul is left three days without sight, fasting, not sure what's going on, right? This isn't just sunstroke. It's not epilepsy or something like that. Saul is completely humbled and brought low by this encounter with Jesus. He's been broken spiritually 
of what he has previously set out to do. I think it's appropriate Warren Wearsby titles this section of his commentary on Acts 9, God Arrests Saul, which I love because Saul was going to arrest believers, right? And yet God is the one who's doing the arresting. And Saul is rendered totally helpless, totally passive. He has to be led by the hand into Damascus because he can no longer see And so his three-day blindness, that's sort of a a pattern that connects him. It's an identifying link to Christ, right? It's as Christ was dead in the tomb three days, Saul also is identifying in that way in a three-day darkness, a type of death. It's a gateway of of transformation. Um, How many of you, uh, my connection group was talking about this a week ago. How many of you guys uh, are comfortable with your own thoughts in the darkness? Anybody in the room, like you just love sitting and meditating? I don't see any hands going up. Like you, you know, we're just like inundated with the podcasts and the music and the kids and community with other people. Like we're social beings. And so a lot of us are like, you know, man, being in the dark, in the silence for three days would have been torture, right? That would have been awful. And, And so Saul is there in that moment, like alone, left to be confronted in his own heart with an ongoing conversation with the Lord. Um, that would be a pretty scary place to be um, when you realize how much of an affront you have created against the Almighty. So Saul's great revelation, right, is that Jesus is the Messiah of Old Testament promise, and he is alive, just like Stephen and and, and the other believers were testifying to. That's the revelation. And that's why Jesus says to him, I am Jesus. He doesn't necessarily say I'm the son or I'm the Lord, though Paul, uh, Saul uses those terms. He's identifying himself with his earthly name intentionally to emphasize his incarnation, his suffering, and the fact that he is still alive and speaking. That's the Jesus who is speaking to Saul. And so Saul's encounter teaches us this. Spiritual transformation, that is, from going from death to life, always requires divine intervention. It requires a miracle. It requires a miracle. Moving from death to life requires this divine intervention. It didn't matter how many Christian meetings Saul crashed or how many Stevens he heard preach, right? It was only the power of God that was going to transform his heart. That's the only thing that was going to change him. I have to imagine that in capturing and arresting Christians over the however long that had been taking place, he overheard lots of teaching about Jesus and probably went back and examined the Old Testament in, in, in the, the law in order to, to contradict those things that were being said. None of those things changed his heart, but this encounter with Jesus did. So for us... You know, contrary to the self-help model of YouTube, Wikipedia, and TikTok, right, we cannot spiritually reinvent ourselves in such a way that will alter our, our eternal destiny. We can't do that on our own. We can get wisdom. We can get practical things. We can, we can work on ourselves, certainly. But it is only the power of Jesus that can change us from a path headed towards death into a path that heads toward life. Divine intervention of this sort isn't always a Damascus Road experience, right? I'm imagining that nobody else in the room, their salvation experience involves light from heaven that outshone the noonday sun, three-day blindness, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, you heard the voice of Jesus speaking to you. I'm imagining that's not your story. I guess it could be, right? But the reality is that when divine intervention in our hearts happens, 
it's often the, subtle, the result of subtle placement of people and circumstances that God has sovereignly used to turn our hearts to himself. And, and most likely, it's only really visible in hindsight. You know, as you look back on your story and you're like, wow, God put that person there and God brought me to that passage of scripture and I was at that place at that time. How did I end up there? And this brings us back to the idea that Pastor Phil was talking about a, uh, last week that God's providence in putting us where he wants us to be is a miracle. It's a miracle. And that is what transforms our hearts. Whenever salvation happens, it is a miraculous work of God. I was thinking that when you think about those people that I asked you to raise your hand about in the beginning of the service, those that you would say would take a miracle for them to really believe, um, it feels like a rarity sometimes to us to see those types of people who are staunchly opposed to Christianity become converted to understand the gospel But I think the scriptures are telling us in Saul's story and in various places that those who seem the furthest from God and the most unlikely to receive salvation are the very ones that God is often targeting. They're the ones that he is tending to target. And maybe it's only a rarity to us because we as his vessels have given up on those people. Family members, coworkers, neighbors, It would take a miracle for them to believe, so I'm not even going to bother. That may be where we are, and that might be why it seems like it would take such such an impossible thing, right? But God can do it, can't he? Let's talk about Saul's countermission. We didn't read this part of the text yet, but let's read together, uh, starting in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Saul's counter mission, right? His reassignment totally reoriented from his previous trajectory. So interesting that Ananias is sort of a a parallel or a contrast to Saul's uh, experience in this story because he receives a vision and a call also, right? That he is called to practice obedience and also, as is implied in the text, forgiveness to this man whose reputation precedes him. 
right? Going to meet with Christianity's arch enemy and, by the way, restoring his, his sight is a pretty big ask, right? Like, I know this man's reputation. To give him his sight back would probably be detrimental to the people around me in the church community that are, you know, fearful and, and hiding in their closets and things when Saul comes to town. Without the vision that God gives him, Ananias would have personally dismissed Saul as too far gone or too terrible to repent and be redeemed, wouldn't he? Like that's Saul, we're, we're staying as clear away from him as possible because we know why he's here. I'm not gonna go evangelize that guy, right? That would have been his attitude. And yet, again, the gospel is a message for those deemed most unlikely and most unworthy to receive it. And so God says to Ananias, go, this is the work I'm doing in, in Saul's life. Now, Ananias is serving only as a confirming witness to what God has already done. He's serving only as a confirming witness to what God has already done, right? Um, He is already, God has already done a work in Saul's heart that Ananias is just going to bear witness to, right? Remember, how does he address him when he sees him in verse 17? What does he call him? What's he call him? Brother Saul, right? He doesn't come in and share the gospel, right? He doesn't come in with, with some, you know, let me make sure, you know, that you really know what you've, what you've done here or whatever. He calls him brother Saul. The Lord Jesus has appeared, who appeared to you, right? Has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is coming to confirm what God has already done. As a matter of fact, Saul's testimony, when he becomes Paul and begins to share in the book of Galatians, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? That was Saul's story, and it's, it's important, his identification as an apostle, one who has seen the resurrected Christ going forward in his role in, in the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, which Ananias does, is it's a uniquely confirming work in, in the book of Acts, as we've been talking about. We've seen that in the example of the Samaritans, when they receive the Holy Spirit after the apostles come, and also in the life of Cornelius, as we'll see uh, in, in a week or two. Um, but the apostles are coming to confirm something to these new people groups that God is bringing into the community of faith. And so for us, when we think about this, right, we need to remember that when we share the gospel, we have to vocalize or we have to share the truth of God's word. But we are just the vessel communicating something to someone that, that God is going to work the change. God is going to bear the fruit in that, right? It's not our eloquence. It's not our understanding. It's the message that we are carrying that God is going to take and use. The Spirit is still the one who brings salvation. Now, uh, let's, let's briefly talk about Saul's uh, role from God because he's given this mission. Uh, he's going to be my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Um, and also, verse 16 entails that he's going to suffer for the sake of, of the name of Christ. Um, this is an emphasis that's really important that the name, uh, the word name is repeated here in reference to Christ. Uh, Ananias says, he's binding all who call on your name in verse 14. Uh, Jesus says, he's going to carry my name. He's going to suffer for the sake of my name. And it occurred to me that whenever we think about Paul, Saul, we're always thinking about his name, you know, Saul to Paul. That's interesting. Why did he change it? Where did that come from? But this is a story about the name of Jesus. Ultimately, this is not a story about Saul. Right? It's not a story about Paul. It's about Jesus and the fact that his name is the one that's going to be proclaimed. 
Um, he's going to respond to this moment where Ananias comes. Uh, the scales thing is much debated what that was, how we understand that. It's a symbol of spiritual blindness being removed, a barrier to seeing Christ being taken away. Uh, and, uh, and we sang a lot about that uh, metaphorically this morning, didn't we? Open the eyes of my heart, right? Out of the darkness into the light. Ephesians 1.18 talks about having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And so Luke uses that motif, the blindness sight, darkness light metaphor to make the point that Saul, though physically blind, has his eyes open spiritually to see the Lord. He has seen the Lord. And so baptism follows that as another confirming element of his new allegiance with Christ. And so the lesson that I want us to take away from this Uh, idea is this. God's saving grace transforms us for his unique commissioning. God's saving grace transforms us for his unique commissioning. Now, Saul has not only joined the way, all right, he's changed allegiance. He's also become an advocate for it. We didn't read verse 20, but it says that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Night and day transformation, right? But it's dependent on God's saving grace for this unique commissioning. He has been seized by the truth of the gospel and is now compelled to proclaim the reality of Christ crucified and resurrected. But as we're about to see in the upcoming weeks, overcoming an old reputation and restoring broken trust can be difficult. All right, the church is going to have to come around and warm up to the idea. So Ananias' role in confirming that Saul is a believer and then Barnabas' role as well um, are very confirming uh, things to, to uh, reference that. Um, this is a new identity. It's a new calling. Um, our calling is not identical to Saul's, right? Each one of us has our own story. But, uh, but the calling that we've received carries the same emphasis. We are worshipers of the crucified and resurrected Christ, and we are witnesses of him to the world. And so again, Saul's transformation is a paradigm for us as we think about our lives going forward. So in conclusion, Saul's mission reminds us that I can be fully convinced that my personal ambitions are God's will, but be completely mistaken. His encounter with Jesus reminds us that spiritual transformation always requires divine intervention. And his countermission reminds us that God's saving grace transforms us for his unique commissioning. What a miracle that Saul was radically converted to belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a miracle that we too, as modern day believers, are afforded the same privilege. What a miracle. Um, Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? And let me just encourage you as we um, close our time in the word to continue praying for the miracle of salvation in the lives of those around you. And then... Be prepared, because often the way that God works is when we pray for an opportunity, he's going to use us to be involved in that opportunity. So maybe just take a moment, and maybe the Spirit of the Lord can bring to mind one of those people that you were thinking about earlier in the service, those who would take a miracle uh, to believe. Maybe lift them up by name to the Lord, and then ask him for the ability for you to go and be a voice We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.